0: to have you join us by way of live stream this morning and uh, we are excited about our time in the word today let's go ahead and go to the Lord together that we are able to come unto you and to worship we're able to pray we're able to plea unto you we thank you for the power of prayer Lord the the promises of coming to a God who is all sovereign is in total control We thank you for your hand of blessing and guidance upon us. Lord, today, as we gather this morning in our homes, Lord, I pray that there would be a a time of of fellowship, but also a time of worship, a time of thanksgiving, and a time of prayer. Lord, we know that as we assemble together in our different locations this morning, we are still one body And we're thankful for the body of Jesus Christ. We're thankful for our brethren all around the world who we call our brothers and sisters because they are also in Christ. We're thankful to be able to know that we do not stand alone anywhere in this world. And we're so grateful for that. Father, we do pray that you'd be with our church family during this time. Lord, I thank you that you continue to meet our needs. I pray, Lord, that you will continue to grow them closer together I pray father that as you prepare us for the day when we're able to gather once again that we will come with a heart of thanksgiving we will come with the desire to worship and to uh, just to encourage one another Lord I pray that the lessons we're learning during these days will be lessons that we will never forget there were we'll lessons that we'll learn about not only ourselves but lessons we'll learn about who you are Lord I pray that you give us a proper view of you. Give us a proper view to view it through the lens of the scripture not through man-made not man-made philosophy or tradition but that we may see the god of the scriptures father we thank you for the giving of your son the lord jesus christ we thank you that before the foundation of the world in the covenant of grace that jesus christ would be the substitutionary sacrifice that he would come into this world and He would become like us, yet without sin. And he would go to a cross and take our place and pay the full penalty for sin. Not his own sin, but the sin of his people. Lord, we rejoice today in knowing that we serve a Savior who is there at the right hand of the Father, whoever lives to make intercession. And Lord, today, as we come before you in prayer, we understand his very position today. Lord, thank you for the Holy Spirit. We thank you for his working in our lives. Lord, how he gives us understanding, gives us discernment. Lord, today as we study your word, I pray that you, Lord, you would just quiet our minds from all the things that could distract us, that the Holy Spirit would impress upon us and teach us and guide us the great truths that we're going to be examining today. Father, we continue to pray for our country, pray for our leadership pray for our state. We pray, Lord, you'll continue to give wisdom and guidance. Lord, help us to be submissive to your rule in our life, where we realize that not everything that we hear will be right. And not everything that we hear will be what we agree with. But Lord, help us to have submissive spirits and a desire to obey. Lord, more importantly, may we desire to be obedient to your word. And we thank you, Father, that there is no aspect of life that has been left unturned. There's no aspect of our life that is untouched by the scriptures. And I pray that every question that we have, we would search out the holy word of God for the answer. We praise you and we thank you for this day. We thank you for all that it is, all that it will be. And Lord, through the broadcast today, we pray that if there is someone who's watching today, who has never repented and believed the gospel of Jesus Christ, we pray today would be that glorious day. I pray now that you'll help us. May we be thankful for every stage of our life. And it's in Christ's name and for his sake I do pray. Amen. Our our confessional reading this morning is found in chapter 22. We've been working our way through uh, this particular chapter and this chapter deals with of religious worship and the sabbath day and we're going to be reading this morning paragraphs four and five paragraphs four and five from the baptist confession chapter 22 paragraph four prayer is to be made for things lawful and for all sorts of men living or that shall live hereafter but not for the dead not for those of whom it may be known that they have sinned the sin unto death paragraph five, the reading of the scriptures, preaching and hearing of the word of God, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in our hearts to the Lord, as also the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper are all parts of religious worship of God. To be performed in obedience to him with understanding, faith, reverence, and godly fear, Moreover, solemn humiliation with fastings and thanksgivings upon special occasions ought to be used in a holy and religious manner. Let's take our hymn books this morning or the hymn sheets that you could have found on our church website on Facebook there and turn over to hymn number 105, 105, My Savior's Love. you for joining us this morning by way of live stream. We are certainly glad to have you with us and uh, for our 10 o'clock Sunday Bible study we're certainly glad uh, that we're able to at least be able to gather in this fashion and uh, this morning we certainly want to honor the Lord uh, in everything that we do. If you would take your Bibles and go to the Old Testament book of Isaiah and go with me to the 40th chapter. Isaiah chapter number 40 Uh, Last week, I began an expositional series on Isaiah chapter 40, and we looked, as by way of introduction, at the truth of sovereign comfort, and we looked at how, because we have a sovereign God, we can find complete comfort in God. And we understood, we understand, and we learned last week that, yes, even things that are uncomfortable, uh, we can find the comfort of God in them. It is the nature of man to find things that are comfortable. Uh, And again, we learned that there's nothing wrong with being comfortable. There's nothing wrong with having a, a comfortable family, a comfortable home and jobs and all of those things. There's nothing wrong with those things. Our problem becomes if that is our source of everlasting comfort, or even I would say of what we believe to be real comfort in this world, we are going to find ourselves sorely disappointed. Now this morning, and as we go on through this particular chapter, uh, many people would say uh, it's one chapter, uh, Isaiah 40, one single chapter, 31 verses, how long could it possibly take to go through one chapter? Well, in order to fully understand, when you go through the scriptures in this manner, and normally as a church, we know that we would take an entire book of the Bible, and we would go through the entire book, and we would arrive at Isaiah 40, having learned what we've already learned up to that point, what Isaiah, in this case, what Isaiah 1 through Isaiah chapter 39 have been teaching us. So it is a bit different for us to take one chapter and begin to study that chapter. So this morning, by way of a continuation of the introduction of this, Uh, We need to just be reminded of a few things as we look at this text. This morning, Isaiah 40, verse number 1, very simply, the Bible says this, Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. Our subject this morning is simply that expression, comfort ye my people. Comfort ye my people. Now these are the words of the prophet Isaiah. He is preaching not his own message. He's not preaching his own word. He's not preaching his own desire. He's preaching and delivering a message from a sovereign and all-sufficient God. So consider this for a moment. Consider the reality that a sovereign God is calling Isaiah to go and deliver a message specifically to his people. This sovereign God calls Isaiah, commissions Isaiah, Sends Isaiah on a preaching mission to preach comfort to his people. Now, again, consider the messenger. The messenger is a sovereign, all sufficient God sending a message of comfort to his people. Now, one of the first truths we need to be confronted with, and this is a comforting truth, is the reality that God has a people. God has a people people who are the objects of his electing love, goodness, and favor. These people God has taken unto himself an unworthy people and made them recipients of his goodness. As we've been learning together and we will continue to learn in this series entitled The God of All Comfort, we will find out just in Isaiah 40 that God is in fact the God of all comfort to his people. Now, many times when you would look at a a passage, and a passage such as Isaiah 40, it is written in a beautiful fashion. It's written in a beautiful manner. As a matter of fact, if you read it, it has a majestic sound to it. it. It reads in many ways, Uh, like none other. Now, there are other passages of Scripture that read just as beautifully. I'm not implying that, but I want you to know that if you were to sit in one sitting, and I would encourage our folks to do this, is to sit down sometime this week, maybe this afternoon, and read Isaiah 40 from beginning to end. Read the whole passage. Read it together, and what you will notice is you will notice that it is one of those most powerful statements in all of Scripture But if we're not careful, we will find ourselves becoming enraptured with the language. We'll become drawn in by the eloquence in which Isaiah speaks. We'll begin to see patterns of language. You'll begin to see, wow, how this thought connects with this thought. And what a beautiful statement. There's actually even a rhythm to this. When you read it, it reads in rhythm and really that's something that is is unique. Uh, The only thing I can compare it to is if you compare it to our reading on Wednesday evenings in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs does not seem to have a rhythm to it, not like this does. This has a rhythm that is uh, makes it what some would say a literary masterpiece. But I would caution us to understand don't fall prey to it as a literary masterpiece. Because if we do, we will read it from an intent that it was never meant to be taken. Again, we can admire it because it's the word of God. We can admire its beauty, but do not allow it to just be a beautiful piece of literature. We need to understand. Isaiah was not concerned at all of whether or not the passage had rhythm, whether or not the passage sounded right, whether it was organized right, he was delivering a message from God. An inspired message from God. When we talk about inspiration, we're not talking about inspired like looking at a sunset over an ocean. We're talking about the God-breathed inspiration of the scriptures. He's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. The message is what Isaiah was concerned about. The message is what he desired to deliver. Why? Because it was God's message. And it is, in fact, a tremendous message to the people of God. Now, you will be emotionally drawn by it if you are, in fact, a believer. You can't read Isaiah 40 and not have some emotion stirred if you are one of his people. But understand that the truths in which Isaiah writes about, the majesty in which the scriptures are given, we've got to be careful that that's not what attracts us. But what should attract us is the expression of the great truth of God's comfort. Now, his purpose, Isaiah, his immediate desperate purpose, which we'll get into a little bit in just a little while, was given in the context To the children of Israel. It had been given to Isaiah beforehand. In other words, Isaiah had the message and then he delivers it. Now, you gotta remember, in our normal exposition of Scripture, we would know what has happened to this point, but we don't because we have not been studying this together. Now, you, of course, I hope, are reading the Scriptures on your own and you do know some of what's happening here. But there's something that occurred in Isaiah 39 that is making Isaiah say the things and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Isaiah 40. In other words, a disconnected thought of chapter 40 and chapter 39 would lead us to a conclusion. What in the world is Isaiah talking about? So as as an overview of this, we're gonna get more in depth than this. It had been shown and preached in Isaiah 39 that the children of Israel were going to suffer. As a matter of fact, there was a message delivered that not only were they going to suffer, they were going to be conquered. Now get this, conquered and carried away into captivity, into a place called Babylon. Isaiah 40 is the result of what has happened in Isaiah 39. They have just heard that they're going to be conquered, carried away, and placed in captivity in Babylon. That was the first message. Now, Isaiah 40 is the message of deliverance. God says through Isaiah, You're going to be captured, you're going to be conquered, you're going to be put in captivity in a place called Babylon. But I want you to understand that there is a rescue, there is a deliverance that's coming, and you will be restored to your own country and back to the city of Jerusalem. That is the primary message in its true context, of the great portion of Isaiah 40. It was extremely relevant to the day and age in which they were living. The children of Israel would have read Isaiah 40 and looked at it and said, wow, based on what we've heard in Isaiah 39 and what Isaiah the prophet has just spoken, this is indeed relevant for the hour. It was a prophecy. But what we would refer to as an immediate prophecy, A prophecy that is actually not only spoken, but at the same time, the verification of a deliverance is also being prophesied. There would be a remnant that would come back from captivity. And there would be some that would not choose to return. But we need to understand when you draw attention to Scripture... This particular chapter Isaiah 40 is quoted is quoted in 3 gospels Matthew, Mark and Luke. Isaiah 40 portions of Isaiah 40 are quoted in the New Testament in Matthew, Mark and Luke. Why is that important? Because here's the reality of that. The reality that they are in the New Testament and they're quoted means that, yes, in true context, it is intended for the children of Israel. But the fact that it carried over into the New Testament shows that what Isaiah was talking about was a foreshadowing of something even more to come a greater deliverance, a greater rescue. This was not just intended only as a promise to the children of Israel, but a promise to God's people. It's foreshadowing. It's an indication that there was something even greater to come. I could tell you this morning that what's the greater deliverance? Deliverance from captivity of Babylon or deliverance from your sin? I would tell you it's the second, deliverance from your sin. It's great to be delivered from captivity and from Babylonian captivity, no doubt was going to be a joyous occasion. But understand that that's not the only message that Isaiah was delivering. The Gospels call us to study the Old Testament including Isaiah 40. So for the person out there that says, why do we look at the Old Testament? The Old Testament is before Christ. It has no relevance to today. It has every bit of relevance today because the Old Testament prophesies the perfect deliverer who would deliver the sinful man from his sin. Isaiah was not just talking about a physical deliverance from captivity. He was promising and preaching about a messiah. This passage, Isaiah 40, is a perfect summary of truly what the message of the gospel is about. The gospel is in the Old Testament. It brings us face to face with the reality of characteristics of the gospel. Isaiah 40 teaches us what the gospel really is. Now, there are some who will falsely teach you and will say the gospel did not exist until you get the New Testament. And if that's true, then everything Isaiah and many of the prophets were speaking about would make no sense as to what they were talking about, because they could not have just been talking about a physical deliverance. There's a spiritual insight to all of this. That's the remarkable thing about the gospel of Jesus Christ. The remarkable thing about the the gospel is that it's foreshadowed and prophesied and preached. And it was delivered in a message that was given to the Old Testament prophet Isaiah to give to the children of Israel. But it was never meant to just be exclusively for Israel, but to be a comfort to all all of his people. So it's often... A, 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 a part of our discipline to look at the gospel in the Old Testament picture. What does the Old Testament teach me about the coming of Messiah? Now, we at our church and those that are attenders and members, we do a lot of studying about the true gospel. We do that intentionally because we are we are convinced that there is in our world today a false belief as to what the real gospel is. And a lot of assumptions and a lot of presumptions are being made as to what the gospel is. And I would submit to you that you cannot fully understand the gospel of Jesus Christ until you see through the lens of the Old Testament. And as you read those two together, you begin to find out now the things that Jesus was speaking about when viewed through the lens of the Old Testament seem to make more sense. Isaiah, like the other prophets, was not just talking about something that could be pigeonholed into a a tiny spot and say, this is just for Israel. No, it was a picture of that which was to come. The result ought to be this, that when we hear the gospel, we ought to be able to know what the real gospel is. We found this in our own church over the years. That some have come to a place where they've made statements like that. I never knew that was there. I've never even seen that in the scriptures before. I never realized there was a connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It comes as a great surprise because sadly many have been taught, listen, just look at the New Testament. You don't have to be concerned with the Old or the Old is only for Israel. It's only for the Jews. And, and friends, if you do that, you are pulling the scriptures apart and you are going to find yourself in a spiritual desert, Because you're not going to understand what, in fact, is Christ talking about. What were the disciples talking about? So when you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and you're doing that in your personal study, and you find them quoting Isaiah 40, now you'll understand why they were quoting that in the context of a New Testament gospel. If you don't come to the Bible for your only answer, how can you actually have a real understanding of what the true gospel is? You know nothing about Christianity. You know nothing about salvation if you do not go to the scriptures for your answer. Everybody has a thought. Everybody has an opinion. Everybody thinks they know, but the only way to find real truth is to find it in the scriptures. God's not concerned about what I presume to be the case. God wants me to know what is the case. What really is the message Of the scripture. And for our intense intentions today and our purposes, what's the real purpose of Isaiah 40? These two verses, Isaiah 40 verses 1 and 2, they form the entirety of this great message. These two verses, the very beginning of this chapter of this chapter that we've got to be careful that we don't get drawn into its eloquence, that we miss the real message, we find out that there is something that God is speaking to his people about. This chapter, as we'll study it, it deals with the comforts of God's people. There's made mention, and we'll see this very quickly in the coming weeks, in verses three, four, and five about the promise of the coming of John the Baptist as the forerunner. Of Jesus Christ. We're going to see that as the forerunner, John the Baptist, who would come and preach Christ, we see that there is a promise of a coming of Messiah. There's details given about the work in which Christ the Messiah would do. There's details about who his person would be. Isaiah deals also in the same chapter with the foolishness of making idols. And he also deals with the complaints that the church of God would levy against God. The comforts of God's people, Isaiah 40 tells us who they are, who the recipients are, why they're receiving comfort. Isn't that a question we need to know? Why am I, as one of God's people, receiving any comfort at all? Why? Isaiah 40 gives us the answer. Believe it or not, Isaiah 40 gives us the answer as to why we are experiencing the sovereign comfort of God, and I would also say why we need it. Now, we're not studying all these chapters up to this point, but chapter 40, in its location in the book of Isaiah, begins what's referred to as prophecies of peace. Chapter 40 is the starting line. Chapter 40 begins the prophecies of peace, which fall into three different categories or divisions. Chapters 40 through 48 deal with the purpose of peace. What is the purpose of God's peace? Chapters 49 through 57 deal with the prince of peace. Who is the prince of peace? Chapters 58 through 66 deal with the program of peace. What is it in fact accomplishing? Now friends, I'm telling you that those of you who are in Christ, those are comfortable words and that is a great comfort to the church knowing that we will never ever be without prophets, the word of God preaching the gospel of peace. Isaiah is exhorting even in this chapter the true ministers of God to go out and preach peace to God's people, to comfort those who are afflicted and suffering and maybe believe that their peace is beginning to waver. Remember what Isaiah had delivered to them. He didn't say, I'm going to take away your captivity or I'm going to not let you suffer. Yes, you're going to suffer. Yes, you're going to be taken captive, but there is a deliverance coming. And I would tell you this morning, church, that's exactly where we are. There is a deliverance coming, but for God's people who've already been delivered, we've been delivered from the power and the penalty of sin through the blood of Jesus Christ and his righteousness. We've already received deliverance that's promised. But God has never once said that you're not going to suffer as my people. Right, that's right. But as you suffer, I will comfort you. Mm-hmm. Isaiah was speaking these words, even as Isaiah was going through these afflictions. It's interesting because when we begin to think about Isaiah and we begin to think about the children of Israel, oftentimes we use this terminology. Isaiah, the faithful preacher The children of Israel, the unfaithful people, right? Isaiah was the faithful preacher, but the children of Israel, the unfaithful people, we know how it happens. They end up doing wrong. They end up being stiff-necked. They end up being hard-headed. They end up being stubborn. They end up rejecting. They don't go into the promised land. But do you understand that even in all of that rejection and all of that thing, God still has a promise for his people of comfort. Now figure that one out. This rebellious, stiff-necked, hard-headed people, God says there's going to be a remnant of them that are going to come out who, in spite of their sin, That's right. I'm still going to deliver them. Mm-hmm. And you ought to find great peace in that this morning, because you and I are sinners who are no better than the children of Israel. That's right. And when you begin to compare yourself and say, listen, I'm glad I'm much more faithful than the children of Israel are. No, you're just as guilty. Right. I'm just as guilty. Isaiah's preaching a message of peace that God would be sufficient even in correction, even in the allowance of suffering, and that even though Israel deserved double punishment for their sins, which is what they really deserve, what you and I deserve, God is going to provide comfort for his people. That's the message he gives Isaiah. Comfort ye my people. Isaiah, you go comfort my people. Isaiah 40 is in its truest sense. A message of sovereign comfort from the God of all comfort. Isaiah 40 is a message of sovereign comfort from the God of all comfort. So what have we already learned in one verse in the background, in the introduction? We've learned this, that the message of comfort to his people is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The message of comfort to his people is the gospel of Of Jesus Christ. The first thing we've got to remember, we've got to understand about the gospel of Jesus Christ is it is a message sent from God. What's happened to the gospel and why it's been watered down and why it's been attempted to be changed is because man has forgotten where the message came from. The message of deliverance, the message of comfort, comes from the only one who can give those things, which is God Himself. Remember, man desires comfortable things. Sadly, sinners find themselves wanting a comfortable gospel. They want a gospel that doesn't require blood. They want a gospel that doesn't require a death. They want a gospel that does not require accountability. But yet, Isaiah was giving a message that there is accountability. But there is a God who's trying to give you a message It is God, notice again in verse one, it is God himself who is ordering Isaiah to speak and he's ordering him him to speak what? Speak comfort, Isaiah. It is the sovereign almighty God himself ordering Isaiah to go and speak to his people and Isaiah, here's the message I wanted you to give them. Even though they're getting ready to go into captivity, even though they're gonna be conquered, I want you to go preach comfort to them. Where will the comfort be found in the promised deliverance? That's where it's coming from. Now, why make such an emphasis about that? Because if you're not clear about the purpose of those first words of Isaiah 40, then the entirety of this chapter alone, you're not going to be clear about it. You're going to wonder, what is all these, why are these verses important? Why does it matter, for example, in the scripture that Isaiah is going to deal about the word of God standing forever? Why does that matter? Why as a believer today do I care that the scriptures will stand forever? Why do I care? Because of these messages. Why do I care that we should never make idols? Why do I care about the majesty and the power of God? Why do I care that God's greatness is all sufficient to meet every need? The first thing we've got to understand about the way of a believer's life and what we'll refer to as Christianity is that it is entirely and completely and totally and fully and altogether from God. The greatest tragedy we're seeing in our churches today, and again, I'm gonna say church is not the world because the world should not be expected to have a proper view of God. The greatest tragedy we're seeing is the church the confessing church's view of God. We're viewing God through the lens of comfort. We're viewing God through the lens of what makes us most comfortable, not who is God really. We've all been guilty of this. We've all had times when we viewed God for what we want him to be. We've all had times we've read the scripture and we don't like what the scripture says about us. And quite frankly, we don't like what the scripture says about God. Because we know that if we're honest with ourselves and we listen to the Holy Spirit, God's sovereignty can't be denied. Yet God's sovereignty in the church is being denied by many who claim to be Bible believers. How is that possible? So we've got to get this right. Some people have a view of God, that God is an angry God in the Old Testament. And just going to use the world's expressions, and he's a nice God in the New Testament. First of all, he's the same God in both. That's right. There is the wrath of God, but there's also the goodness and the love of God. They are not mutually exclusive. They all describe who God is. But some people think God enjoys and delights in punishing. Some have viewed God as just this this God, this, this being who is out to ruin my good time. That's how they view God. And some in the church have taken this opinion. They've said, listen, God is just so angry in the Old Testament. Why don't we just do away with that God of the Old Testament and just say the New Testament? Because if you do away with the Old Testament, the New Testament God doesn't make any sense at all. God is not in the opposition business. He is, however, in the business of the truth, his purposes, his plan, his glory, his sovereignty, but he's also about his comfort. Now think about that for a minute. This God wants to give comfort to his people. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. Captivity predicted. However, the comfort of God's people and a promised deliverance has been given. It's expressed in terms such as comfort. Isaiah, in this chapter, begins to speak in very clear and strong in a forceful almost manner, about the promise of redemption and salvation that would come through the Messiah and Jesus Christ. Isaiah was speaking a lot in types. Now, Isaiah 40 is what we'll refer to when you take it as the whole, is the more quote-unquote spiritual part of the prophecy. In other words, the prophecy he's giving is not just about physical deliverance and a physical remnant returning. It's a spiritual part of the prophecy, which reaches out and would have to include the entire gospel of Jesus Christ, which is still to come. That's why very early in this chapter, John the Baptist is mentioned. Verse 3. We'll not talk about this much today, but I want you to see it. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in a desert a highway for our God. We know that that appears in the New Testament, and Isaiah is preaching about the promise of Jesus Christ. He doesn't name John the Baptist, but the New Testament tells us that the voice of him crying in the wilderness would be John the Baptist, the forerunner of the coming Christ. The chapter starts with comfort, continues on in comfort, and ends in comfort. The very last verse of this chapter. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. Show me a more comforting verse for the people of God than Isaiah 40, verse 31. But we have to understand, why is that a comforting verse? Because of everything that's in the previous 30 verses. Everything is connected. The word comfort is repeated in verse number one to confirm it. You know, when we want to confirm something to be true, we often repeat it to be sure that people know we really mean what we say. I'm not trying to under-spiritualize this, but that's what God is doing. He says, comfort ye, comfort ye my people. Isaiah, I'm confirming this to you. This is the message. Comfort. It is God speaking through Isaiah who is the God of all comfort. The people to whom he wants comforted are whom? My people. Isaiah does not say comfort the entire world. But my people, the people I have chosen, the people who have made a covenant with Christ, with those who are mine, the people in whom I have given to my son. Remember, when did God the Father give a people to his son? Before the foundation of the world. Not when Jesus Christ was born and took on a robe of human flesh. Before the world began, God the Father gave a people to his son. His people are the people who have been redeemed. They've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. What is the purpose of all the sacrifices in the Old Testament? They were to point us to the need for a full atonement to be made. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that. Every one of God's people are the people who he has called effectually by his grace. Those of us in our church, we've been learning this, and these these truths that I'm speaking to you this morning are not new for anybody who attends our church. We've been talking about this for the last three years at least. Now, you may be listening today, and that may be the first time you've ever heard words like effectually called. It may be the first time you've ever heard that God has a people. And maybe you've never really heard a proper biblical definition of grace. This choice was made by God. This demonstrates God's sovereignty in whom comfort would be directed by God himself saying to Isaiah, comfort my people. Nobody's arguing with God's choice here, but they seem to want to argue with God's choice of those to salvation. But yet God says there is a people that are my people. Now, how many of them did God create? All of them. But God says they're my people. Israel, don't miss this, Israel needed Christ. And you say, how could they have needed Christ? He didn't come during that time in the Old Testament. Israel needed and needs Christ today, and so do we. Nothing in Israel, modern day or old time Israel, apart from Christ is saving. The sacrifices, the things that they adhered to, the children of Israel, whom Isaiah speaking comfort to, needed Christ. When did they need Christ? They needed Christ then. The irony is, is this is hundreds of years before Jesus Christ even shows up on the scene and yet, God is telling Isaiah, speak about the comfort that's going to come in through the Messiah. Why did they need Christ? The same reason we need Christ. Because of the spiritual, sinful corruption of our depraved nature. Every one of us today faces the temptations of the devil. We face times when we choose to sin rather than flee temptations. We need Christ in the various afflictions that we meet each and every day. It is the will of God that his people would be comforted. Now, we learned last week in Psalm 77, as a psalmist wrote, there are people who are not comforted because they refuse to be comforted. They refuse God's comfort, just like the portion of Israel that would not return. They chose to not return. It's evidenced. How do we know that God wants to comfort his people? It's evidenced by the fact that that God the Father sent the Son. How do you know that God wants to comfort? By the sending of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the confirmation of God's desire to comfort His people. Maybe today you say, I've never realized that before. It's a great and powerful truth the greatest evidence I have that God wants to comfort his people is Jesus Christ. And he goes one step further. Jesus Christ came, lived a sinless, perfect life, died according to the appointed time on Calvary's cross at the appointed time Was buried, rose again from the grave three days later, according to the scriptures. Was seen by many witnesses, ascended to the right hand of the Father, and before he left, as we've learned in our study of the Book of John, he told us, "I will not leave you what? Comfortless. Who did he say would come? The Holy Spirit." Jesus himself was declaring to his own disciples, there's a greater comforter than me coming, the Holy Spirit of God. And you and I, believers, have that very same promise today. We have that same comforter today. If you are in Christ, you have the comfort of the Holy Spirit of God. Isn't it remarkable how the book of Isaiah and the book of John go together? Coincidence? No. The sovereign hand of God. And then we get to participate in ordinances that remind us to remember who God is. Christ himself ordained that we would continue on with the ordinance of baptism and the ordinance of receiving the Lord's Supper. Why? As token ideas? No, as reminders of who God is. It's interesting that There are people that hold an entirely different view. They have the view that, no, I became a believer. I became a Christian by my own effort. I became a Christian by my own desire. I remember the day that I stood in front of a mirror and I decided I'm going to live a better life. I'm going to be a better person. They've even decided I'm going to be better by going to church. I'm going to be better... By starting I'm even going to pick up my Bible and I'm going to read and I'm going to pray. The problem is the gospel is not about becoming a better person. That is not the gospel according to God. And you saying preacher, would you tell a person who picks up their Bible not to read it? Absolutely not. But if you think the gospel is being a better person by just simply deciding I'm going to go to church, I'm going to start praying to be a Christian to them is simply I'm trying to find God. The reality is we don't go finding God. The reality is God found us. Here's what happens often when people go seeking God by their own will and by their own desire, what they want God to be. God seems to be unable to be found because the truth is you'll never find the God of the Bible by finding him or seeking out for him with what you want him to be. People are seeking for a God that will give them and make them a better person. Now, instead of understanding, that's not why Isaiah was told by God to preach a deliverance. Sadly, many have bought the idea that finding God is a human activity. They go with the hope of becoming a better person. The first statement The first message that we're seeing in this very first verse is that the message of the gospel comes from God. If it comes from God, that also teaches us something about God. That means that God's saving is his action and his activity, not what you and I do. No matter where in the Bible you open, you are going to find it is the God, the almighty sovereign God who is at work. We know in the garden, the Bible shows us Adam and Eve had a right relationship to God. The Bible opens with Adam and Eve in a right relationship with God, but in their sin and in their desire, they turn against that same God and that misery caused by their fall is what we're still suffering today. You know what causes suffering? Sin. Those of you that are blaming suffering on God are missing the, the most important part. Po- the, the most important point is this. Suffering is because of sin. And if God doesn't sin, then where does suffering come from? Man's desire to sin. So how can a man or a woman whose utmost desire is to sin, be the author and the active agent in saving themselves. We can't even comfort ourselves properly. Why? Because we will view it from a sinful perspective of ourselves. Remember, God's not comforting his people just because he wants them to be happy and healthy and wise because he has a purpose for them. When you realize God has a people for his purpose, you begin to understand that the message of the Bible, because it comes from God, God is using the very people who rebelled against him and he still says, you're my people. Even though you're wicked sinners, you're still my people. Here's how human thought works. You wrong me once and I'm done with you. We don't even forgive properly. We claim to be theologians and and holy and righteous, and we don't even know how to forgive right. Yet we think we can be the author of the message that God sent to Isaiah. How can a wicked, depraved people like us, who are hard-hearted and stiff-necked and stubborn and rebellious, think that the comfort that Isaiah was preaching about was something that we could muster up? That's why the chapter begins Isaiah, comfort my people, saith your God, through what? Through my words. We find out that as we continue to read, you see in the very first parts of the scripture, you see that God made promises. He made promises to them. He confirmed them by an oath to give them what? To give them comfort. God's preachers are sent out with a message of comfort, not to make us comfortable, but a comforting message. How do we find comfort in the message Isaiah is delivering? By considering God properly. Human comfort and godly comfort are two different things. That's right. yeah. Some of the things God does to the human mind doesn't seem comforting. But in his program and in his plan, his purposes, his sovereignty, his providential hand, that is his comfort. Why do you think the sinner struggles so mightily? Why do I need to be comforted? Why do I need to have my sins paid for? Because man doesn't view himself through the proper lens. That's what the preachers of the gospel are doing. I bet you never thought for a moment that the gospel message is a message of comfort. Yet it is. Because it delivers me from what I need the most comfort from sin. Today, the most comfort we need is not from suffering and affliction in the day and age in which we live. We need the comfort that Jesus Christ provides from our sin. We need comfort from ourselves. Not me, I'm a good person. Therein lies the very words Isaiah is addressing. You only have to start again, reading the very first chapters of the book of Genesis to discover that God acted. Man left to himself never would have acted upon himself to save himself. The moment Adam sinned, what happened? God came to him. And told Adam, I'm going to do something about what you just did. Now, that's simplifying it, but that's what happened. Adam didn't sin and then go try to find God and say, God, I need to make this right. No, God came to him and said, listen, Adam, you sin, but I'm going to make this right. Not for your sake, but for my sake. You keep on reading through the Old Testament you keep finding that same promise. The promise that Isaiah is preaching is the same promise that God gave to Adam when Adam fell. Genesis 3, which many believe and I take this position that Genesis 3 verse 15 is the truest first picture of the gospel. What does it tell us in Genesis 3:15? It tells us about the serpent. It tells us about the curse. Here's what it says, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. What an amazing truth. Isaiah addresses the people's refusal to be comforted. They didn't come looking to God and say, God comfort us. God came looking for them. We speak these words over and over and over again to show that God desires to comfort his people. There's a wonderful passage I want to draw us to as we bring this to a close this week. It's also in the book of Isaiah, it's Isaiah 61. And knowing what we know now about what Isaiah was preaching, you're going to see that Isaiah 61 has similar characteristics to Isaiah 40. You're also, if you study your Bible, you're going to realize that this chapter is also quoted many times. It's actually quoted by the Lord Jesus Christ himself in places. Isaiah 61 says this in verse one, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord And the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. And they shall build the old waste, they shall raise up the former desolations, and they shall repair the waste cities, the desolations of many generations." And strangers shall stand and feed your flocks, and the sons of the aliens shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers. But ye shall be named the priests of the Lord. Men shall call you the ministers of our God. Ye shall eat the riches of the Gentiles, and in their glory shall ye you boast yourselves. For your shame ye shall have double, and for confusion they shall rejoice in their portion. Therefore in their land they shall possess the double. Everlasting joy shall be unto them. For I, the Lord, love judgment. I hate robbery for burnt offering, and I will direct their work in truth, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. And their seed shall be known among the Gentiles, and their offspring among the people. All that see them shall acknowledge them, that they are the seed which the Lord hath blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation, he hath covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorneth herself with her jewels. For as the earth bringeth forth her bud, and as the garden causeth the things that are sown in it to spring forth, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. Those verses remind us of that promised deliverance that Isaiah wrote about. We're reading about them in Isaiah 40 and Isaiah 61. They become even more and more clear. Comfort. Comfort to be found even in the Old Testament for a promise of a savior. Had God not come looking for us, we would have wandered the wrong way. We would have taken the wrong road and we would end up separated from him. The Bible tells us, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God's own son came and lived this perfect life. He suffered and he died upon a cross. God sent him that his people might be redeemed and would be reconciled unto him. That is you and I. How much more plain can God make it? God looks upon us, not because we're valuable, not because we're worthy, but out of a heart of God's eternal love, God makes us capable of even considering the very gospel in which we stand upon. The God who created is the God who saves. It's God's action. It's God's initiative from beginning to end. In our text, and we'll study more next week in Isaiah 40, those first 11 verses, really, if you took those verses and you put them as an introduction to the book of Isaiah, they would form the entirety purpose of the entire book of Isaiah, what you find in the first 11 verses of Isaiah 40. That declaration, comfort ye, comfort ye my people. Isaiah begins to describe a way in which God will move towards his ultimate purpose and his ultimate accomplishment which is to comfort his people and ends with the reality like we already read in verse 31 they that wait upon the lord shall renew their strength they shall mount up with wings as eagles they shall run and not be weary and they shall walk and not faint that Is the comfort that only a sovereign God can provide. As we close our time this morning in prayer here in just a moment, just a quick announcement. Uh, Thank you for our church family for understanding about uh, the postponement of our Saturday morning theology. Yesterday morning, we will uh, have that uh, time this coming Saturday, May the 2nd, and that'll be at 9 o'clock. So please make note of that. And uh, that's for all, all to join in on that. That's not just for the men and the young men. Uh, all, everybody in the church is able to uh, join in on that. Uh, that will be on our, uh, our, our, our church uh, group page, our Facebook group page. Uh, so make note of that. And then also don't forget about this coming Wednesday. We'll be right back here again for our Wednesday worship service at seven. And we're gonna continue through our studies in the book of Proverbs. And we'll be looking at the subject of the lying tongue. On Wednesday. So we hope you'll join us then. Of course, here in just a few moments, around 1130, uh, we'll be broadcasting live again for our Sunday morning worship service where we'll be looking at a passage out of the book of John, the 19th chapter, verses 12 through 26, considering the subject of Behold Your King. So I hope you can join with us here in about a half an hour or so. I look forward to to having you join us by live stream. Let's pray together, and then we'll be finished for this hour. Father, we thank you for the time we've had in your word. Lord, I pray now that these truths that we've heard, Lord, that we would not easily forget them, that Father, you would help us and keep us in remembrance of them. We thank you for the comfort that comes through your word. We thank you for the message of comfort that you send to your people. May we understand that all true comfort comes from you. And the greatest comfort we can find in this world is not comfort from affliction, but comfort understanding that our sins have been paid for and that we have in fact been redeemed. And we are God's people. Thank you, Father. I pray you'd bless each family. Be with us in just a few moments as we begin our Sunday worship service. And may Christ truly, again, be glorified and magnified. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.